Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Trickington, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Rachel Hannell to discuss her new book, Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. It's just been published by Minnesota University Press. So Rachel, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Dr. Hannell is a former newspaper reporter and copy editor. She's now an assistant professor at Minnesota State University with a master's in history and a PhD in creative writing. Her last book was a 2013 memoir, Will Be the Last Ones to Let You Down, Memoir of a Gravedigger's Daughter, which was a finalist for a Minnesota Book Award. So the book that we're talking about today isn't one that fits particularly easily under the category of women's history, but I think it would be hard to pin down under any particular category. It's part biography, part investigative journalism, part creative nonfiction. Um, And it's the story of Camilla Hall, who's a young woman from Minnesota, who was one of the five members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, killed in a shootout with the Los Angeles police in 1974. Incidentally, um, I worked for many years on gender and terrorism policy, and there was a quote from the introduction of this book that really resonated with my experience in that field. Um, You write that Camilla Hall was, quote, characterized simultaneously as a militant lesbian who wholeheartedly embraced revolution and as someone inept with a gun who only joined because she wanted to be near her former lover. Reporters struggled to find an easy narrative for her life, and when they couldn't find one, they made one up. Unquote. So this is something that I have seen over and over again in writing on women who commit violence, this, this need to put them into some kind of recognizable category, typically either the irredeemable monster or the naive camp follower. And so the care that you take in this to really unpack the psychological, the political, the historical, and the personal factors that influenced Camilla and her choices is a really welcome intervention. You know, the reader gets to see her as being fully human without explaining away the really disastrous consequences of her actions. 
So before we jump into this book, um, tell us a little bit about your own background. What about your previous writing led you to this and why Camilla Hall? Sure. So you had mentioned that I had worked as a journalist for several years. Uh, so by the time I came across Camilla's story, I was still working at uh, my local newspaper. Uh, so my background is journalism. I just have always loved writing the stories of other people. I've always loved current events and the drama of real life. Like it just always was so fascinating to me. And I always loved to write. And so I thought, well, a career in journalism seems like it would be a really great fit. And it was, I loved it. And I came across Camilla's story in 1999. Uh, we had an incident in Minnesota uh, where a woman named Sarah Jane Olson was arrested for her involvement in the SLA back in the 70s. And she had been in hiding for 24 years. Uh, so the police caught up to her and arrested her. And in the newspaper reports uh, that occurred after her arrest, that's when I found some information about Camilla. There was a background story on the SLA and a little picture of Camilla in the newspaper and uh, a little cut line under the picture that said she was from St. Peter, Minnesota, which was only 10 miles from where I was living. And I thought, wow, I, I've never heard of her. I have always lived in this area. I feel like I was pretty informed on the history of this area and the kind of the weird things that had happened. I'd never heard of Camilla. And so I thought, oh, I want to I want to learn more because her picture, she has this blonde hair and glasses and she's smiling. She just looked so warm and friendly. And my first thought was, how does somebody like this get involved in a radical terrorist organization? So as I, as I said in the beginning, this is a book that kind of falls in between categories, part biography, part journalism, part even memoir. What other books did you see as models for this as you were writing it? And why did you choose to include yourself and sort of make transparent your research process throughout the book? Yeah, um, I am fascinated by nonfiction books in which the author is a presence. And when I did my PhD in creative writing, and I did it uh, through Bath Spa University in the UK, it was such a wonderful opportunity to not only produce this creative work as part of my dissertation, but also to do some critical research that accompanied that that um, went along with it. And so I really wanted to investigate. The, the role of the narrator in writing a biography. So that first person voice. And so I was really fortunate to be able to dive pretty deeply into that and see examples from, you know, centuries ago up through modern examples. But the two books that really informed how I wanted to approach this book are The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot and Into the Wild by John Krakauer. So in both of those books, the authors were on the search of somebody who there was very little known about their lives. And in both cases, kind of these huge gaps existing, you know, for Henrietta Lacks, there just was not much documentation about her life at all. And with Chris McCandless for Into the Wild, uh, he was by himself. He went on this adventure by himself, you know, for years at a time and, and was in contact with very few people and clearly didn't leave documents behind. I mean, very rarely. Uh, so those two were really good models. And I appreciated how we got the narrator's voice. We saw the narrator on the search for these people and what compelled them to do the search. And I just love knowing why the writer is interested, why it's so important to them to 
find out about this person. And I just really wanted the reader of my book to get that sense of discovery along with me. Well, it makes it really fun being able to peel back that that surface a little bit. Um, and let's actually zoom even further out just for listeners who don't know about the SLA or even really about the status of domestic terrorism in the U.S. in the 1970s. Could you talk a little bit more about the broader historical context here? You know, who are the SLA? What's the context in which they emerge? Why are they so notorious? Sure. So the SLA was really born out of that very heady time in U.S. history in the 1960s, where you had all sorts of protest movements. The Vietnam War was raging, so people were protesting our involvement in Vietnam. Um, there were a lot of protests regarding social rights and racial rights. And while some gains were made by the end of the 70s or by the end of the 60s, you had the Civil Rights Act, um, the war by the early 70s, the war is starting to wind down there's still this group of people who are still really, really committed to revolutionary thought. Most of the others at that point, you know, they'd gotten older, they got married, you had families, they kind of passed off their 60s protest as a kind of youthful adventure. But by the early 70s, there's there's still this really small but really core group that is saying, this is not over, (laughs) we're still in Vietnam, we still have way too much progress to make for, you know, racial equality or social equality. So the people who remained who were committed were particularly committed, and they were particularly radical. And so the SLA comes out of that. So by early 1973, there's a core group of maybe four people who are writing these communiques and manifestos for this new group, the SLA, and their vision for what they wanted it to be. So they really became notorious because they were so violent. You know, really, a lot of the protest movements in the 60s were relatively peaceful. And by the late 70s, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, you start to see uh, the groups who do remain are becoming more violent with bombings and that kind of thing. But the SLA, their first action was to kill uh, Marcus Foster, a black school superintendent in Oakland, which seemed really bizarre for a group that wanted all this racial progress. Why would their first target be a black man? And then certainly most notorious for the kidnapping of newspaper heiress Patricia Hearst in February 1974, which um, gave them worldwide attention. Mm-hmm. So as you said, um, like Henrietta Lacks, like Chris McKenless, this is in a lot of ways a biography of just a regular person. And that brings with it a lot of challenges of finding ways to get at their inner lives. So how did you go about that with no archive? How did you find these sources beyond these very thin and often salacious narratives that you find in the press? Right. Well, I was very lucky in that Camilla's father, the Reverend George Hall, had left some documents in archives at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, where he had taught uh, for several years. He had taught religion and theology. And I think because that is the place where he had spent the most time, the Halls were a very itinerant family. They moved around a lot because of his job as a pastor and a professor. Um, But they were in St. Peter for the longest amount of time. So I think he felt a special tie toward that college. And I also felt, felt, um, you know, he's a, he's kind of a historian, he's a scholar. And so I think he was a man who really understood that, you know, we need documentation. I I want to leave these things behind and I want to leave them 
someplace that where people will take care of them. So in that archive, there's not very much, but I had some letters to start with. Um, I had some writings that George Hall had did. He had written an unpub unpublished memoir after his wife had died. Um, and there were some other materials in there that at least gave me a start. And so as I started digging, uh, started writing a blog, then I just would uncover more and more. Suddenly I had people reaching out to me because, you know, they knew Camilla um, and things like that. So it, it really was a snowball effect. And I always thought I never had enough, right? Like as a historian, you think, oh, I never have enough. Um, but when I finally sat down with it all and pieced it all together, it, it, it was enough for at least what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, let's jump into that story that you were able to tell then. Um, so you start in parts one and two of this book of sort of chronologically going through Camilla's life. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, what was her childhood like, her early adulthood? How did she grow up? Yeah, so she grows up in St. Peter, Minnesota, small town. I mean, at that time, maybe six, seven thousand people, quite small, um, but with this uh, Lutheran college. Uh, so she goes up there and, you know, is just kind of living your typical Midwestern life. But one thing that really marked Camilla's life as a young child were um, sibling deaths. So this is really what sets her apart as she's growing up. Um, just a very, very tragic story. So she had a brother who died when she was three years old. Uh, unexpectedly, it just seemed like he had some kind of virus that attacked his heart and he died. Three years later, her other brother died of what appeared to be um, a genetic kidney condition. So then it's just Camilla and her sister Nan. So they're growing up together. But by the time they get to high school, when Nan is a freshman and Camilla is a senior, Nan dies. So she seems to also have this kidney genetic condition. Um, and Nan had a lot of health problems growing up too. So by the, by the time Camilla is 17, she's the only one left in the family. And it just really is so tragic. But this is a family, um, faith is very important to them. They're Lutheran, so they really have that mindset of being stoic, not talking a lot about emotions. It's very much like, well, we have faith, we have faith in God, we're just going to move on. You know, we're just going to plunge right headlong into life and, and really pick ourselves up. But I think while that on the outside is, you know, a good way to maybe go about your life, I think that grief in that family was really unresolved and I think ended up deeply affecting Camilla. How could it not? Yeah. So after that, when she leaves for college, what kind of life does she start to build for herself outside of her parents? Yeah. So she and her parents are disconnected at a pretty early age for Camilla, just in terms of distance. And I think Camilla, by all accounts in high school, she was so outgoing and so friendly. Everyone just loved her. And she seemed to just really be able to handle life with zest and zeal. And I think her parents saw that is as, oh, she's independent. She's, she's fine. She's fine on her own. So actually, during her senior year of high school, her parents moved to a suburb of Chicago and, and leave Camilla behind, basically. Um, and then she goes to college at the University of Minnesota, but her parents are still in the Chicago area. So there's some distance there right away. 
Uh, once Camilla graduates from college, she finds a job as a social worker in um, St. Louis County in Minnesota, and that's up in the northern part of Minnesota. So that's how her post-college career starts out in social work. And I really liked how you show these different moments in Camilla's early adulthood where she has this real idealism about, about something that kind of comes straight up against the wall of reality. Um, could you talk a little bit about those junctures, both in this social work career, in her politics, um, and then later her attempts at unionizing her gardening job? Yeah, sure. So she starts out as a social worker working for counties, and she's primarily working with young unwed mothers. Her first case was a 13-year-old girl, an eighth grader, who is pregnant. And so Camilla's writing letters to her parents and, and really is quite proud of the work that she's doing and explaining this work that she's trying to do with this young girl and trying to tell her, you know, probably the best option would be to give your child up for adoption. But there was some resistance there. But pretty quickly, again, through letters that Camilla had written to her parents, she's becoming frustrated. And it was that idealism. I think on paper, you think of a social work career um, in a county system as, wow, I'm really going to help people. But she ran up into some resistance with uh, managers. Um, Camilla really just tried to follow the rules as far as who gets money and that kind of thing. And then she said clients would complain and they would go up the chain and the manager would just override Camilla's decision and give them money anyway. Uh, so I think she just grew frustrated pretty quickly. And also Camilla is a really deeply empathetic person. And, you know, you're working with some pretty sad cases when you're working in social work. And she managed to do it for two years and then just got burned out. So at that juncture, she decides she wants to move to California. And she was a talented artist. And so she thought, you know what, maybe I'll move to California and make my living doing art. Uh, so she was able to do that for a little bit in Los Angeles. And then after about a year, that dried up. And so she said, well, I'm going to pivot. I'll go to Berkeley and see if I can make a living there doing art. And that only worked for a little bit. And so she pivots and she says, well, I love the outdoors and nature. And she gets a gardening job for a parks district. And then at that point, uh, women were only temporary workers. And so she was really working hard in 1973 to try to get the parks district to hire these women on uh, full time. Well, that didn't work. And so this is the end of 1973. So my theory is that because of that disappointment, she was out of a job, this union work, this unionizing didn't work out. Um, I think that is when that is when she got back in touch with uh, her friend in the SLA and decided to once again pivot, but pivot, pivoted to this really radical group. Well, that's a great transition to part two of this book, which sort of chronicles Camilla's path towards the SLA. Um, I'm interested in why you think she would have been an attractive recruit for them, as well as sort of why she would have been interested in their goals. Sure. So Camilla was really an outlier. If you do any kind of reading about the SLA, um, it's it's really clear who who the leaders were, and it's really clear to see kind of how the it, it was basically like by 1973, early 1973, you have kind of two separate circles of people um, who are kind of doing the same thing, and then they come together later in the year as the SLA. But at any one point, Camilla is not a part of 
either of those two groups. She, you know, she really is an outlier. So it's, it's hard to know exactly when she was recruited to join. Um, but I do have a theory that it maybe was in the summer of 1973. And the reason for that was perhaps because Camilla actually had some money. So at this time, the group is very small. It's very ragtag. They have a couple of members who have money, and then there's a falling out, and so the, the money tree dries up because the one woman who kind of was funding them uh, decided to leave the group. So uh, Patricia Soltisik, who had been Camilla's lover, she had been the first person Camilla met when she moved to Berkeley, and they had an on-and-off relationship for a couple of years. At this point, the relationship was off, but I think... Uh, Patricia Soltisik might have been thinking about, okay, who do we know? Who do we know who maybe has some money? Who do we know who is into these ideas and would not be opposed, you know, to opposed to radical ideas? Um, I'm just wondering if maybe Camilla was approached initially during that time just for money because nobody in the SLA at this point was working. Camilla was the only one who had a job. She had some money coming in through a trust fund as well. Um, and I, I think I could see her, you know, giving money to the group in this initial stage, but also giving money and saying, well, that's it. You know, I don't want to be involved any more than this, but yeah, sure, I'll give you some money. So I think maybe over the last couple of months of 1973, either they worked on Camilla a little bit more to try to get her into the group, or she finally came, she finally came around. Because on paper, this is a group that Camilla would back their ideas, you know, through their manifestos and communiques, um, it, it looks good, you know, to a radical in the early 70s. Could we talk a little bit more about that? You know, what are the ideas in their manifesto that would have struck a chord with her? And I'm especially interested in a quote you include from Emily Harris, I think, that Camilla, quote, felt the methods of women's struggle had to be expanded. Um, what do you think she meant by that? Yeah, so if you read some of the first writings that the SLA put out, they put out a number of what they called screeds, and they put out a number of what they called manifestos. But the very early ones um, that were developed in early 1973, for example, they are saying this is a group that's going to be made up of everyone, you know, no more fascist ruler class, no more capitalist class. Like, we want everyone to be involved, men, women, Black, white, Asian, older people, the gay and lesbian community, all of that. Um, and they had several goals, women's rights being one of them. So the SLA really kind of everybody had their little thing, you know, that they were fighting for. And I think Camilla was recruited and also was attracted to the group because there was this pretty big emphasis on women's rights. Like we are going to fight for women and also gay and lesbian rights. With Camilla being a lesbian, um, that was something really important to her too. So I can see where on the surface, if a group is saying, hey, we're all equal here and we are going to fight because we're tired of it, we're frustrated, we're gonna fight to try to get these things um, to finally work. Uh, I think that would be one reason why Camilla would have been attracted to their ideals. And let's talk a little as well about women's participation more broadly in the SLA. Um, she's not really an outlier on that front because at least half the members of the SLA are women. Um, and a lot of them are acting as combatants, which is not entirely 
typical to see in this type of group. Um, could you talk a little bit more about some of the other women who were involved um, and maybe why you think that the group was so attractive? Yeah, it, it really does set the SLA apart. I mean, they were a very small group, so it's not like they were a group of 5,000 and half were women. You know, they're a group of basically eight and five of them are women, but still just that alone um, really did set them apart. I mean, of course, there were women in the over history, you know, involved in this time period all across the world. You know, I think of Ulrike Meinhof, the Bader Meinhof gang, and um, Leila Khalid of the PLO. Um, you know, it wasn't uncommon, but it was worldwide, but it was a little uncommon in the U.S. And you did have women involved in, say, the weather underground. But in terms of violent action, it's primarily bombings. You know, it's not like, let's dress up in full combat gear and have our guns and we're ready to do this, which is what the SLA was doing. So you're right when you say that they were ready for full battle mode. Um, and a couple of the women, you know, who were part of the group initially, definitely had that mindset, you know, where revolution is going to take violence. Um, and their their families could see that, uh, their friends could see that. But somebody like Camilla, um, and there was also a member named Angela Atwood, uh, those two have always been looked at as really the most kind of docile members of the group and really just more mysterious of why they would have chosen to join something so violent and chosen to join a group that was going to require them to get guns and do all of this um, gun range training and battle tactics and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, the, the, the mix of women within the group is quite a variety. So by 1974, Camilla is all in, basically, and is really underground. And as you write, there's really only one main source for what her life was like after she goes undercover, and it's a very unreliable one because it's Patty Hearst's memoir. So I'm interested in sort of what are what's problematic about that source, and then how did you then try to figure out what her life might have looked like during those last 102 days you chronicle in part three? Right. So, yeah, the, the Patty Hearst memoir, you have to look at what, what's her goal here, you know. And so that memoir came out in 1982. So she had already been, you know, her sentence had already been commuted. So she's been out of prison uh, for about three years, but still, she's still a talker. You know, people are still talking about Patty Hearst and still have these really radical viewpoints on was she really a member of the group or was she really a hostage for the 18 months that she was part of the group all of these questions so you know of course she wants to write a memoir to clear her name to make it clear why like yes I was a hostage this whole time and here's why I never tried to escape and that kind of thing so of course she's going to try to make herself look really good right so you have to keep that in mind but when I was reading the memoir I, I thought about the things like just pure description. Here's where we moved. Here's the house that we lived in. Here's the next house that we lived in. Those kind of things. I just thought, well, I don't think she would have a motive to lie about those kind of things, you know, those kind of descriptive elements. So in that way, the book was useful just to trace the path of what this group did in the period between they kidnapped Patty and when six of them were killed in Los Angeles. So in that way, fine. You know, I can, I can get kind of a lot of meat um, from that. But also, just knowing who Camilla was as a person, and like I said, even when she joined the group, she was relatively isolated. 
She didn't really know anyone else except for Patricia Soltisik. So I, I can't help but to think that while she's within that group, while they're in hiding, she's still isolated. You know, there there I think Angela Atwood was a very kind soul, but there are some people involved in this group who are not very kind. <laughs> so Donald DeFries being one of them, Sinkyu, the leader, um, he just sounded kind of brutal and, and certainly had a question, you know, his mental stability as well. And somebody like Bill Harris, you know, just anytime I hear Bill Harris talk these days, and it's not very often, but uh, he just kind of comes off as a complete jerk. So, so I think that Camilla really would have struggled during that time. You know, you're in these tiny little cramped spaces with eight other people. You can never leave. And I think the tension must have just been incredible. And, you know, as her, you know, Camilla being such an empathetic person, I I felt safe to assume that that was a very, very tough time for her. So what was the prevailing story about Camilla and about her role in the SLA before this book? You know, how, how have journalists, how have other historians included her when they tell the story of the SLA? Yeah, it's very dismissive. So for one thing, there's very little out there, you know, hardly anybody, if they are going to write about the SLA. Well, if anyone's going to write about the SLA, it's going to be about Patty Hearst. And then if they do decide to go beyond that and they want to make it more of a group history, Camilla still just it gets the, the briefest of mentions. I mean, I think she is the one where the, the littlest is known about her. And so they do t- tend to rely on the newspaper reports that came out at the time where let's just put her in an easy little box. Oh, she she represented the, the gay and lesbian faction, so she must have been a militant lesbian, and that's why she jo- joined this terrorist group. Um, so that's really kind of the prevailing um, attitude toward her that you find, and that just gets repeated. So there have been books about the SLA that have come out over the years, and still that type of description is still what writers tend to rely on when they're writing about Camilla, even if it's a brief mention. You also note that they often talk about her as being chubby, which I thought was sort of sad and a little bit indicative of how seriously they treated her. Exactly. Um, yeah, she was often cast as, as heavy or overweight, and I, I really can't figure that out. There had been one time in her life where she was a little bit on the heavier side, but even in letters she's writing to her parents once she's settled in the Bay Area, she's hiking 10 miles, she's taking karate lessons, she's telling her parents, wow, I've lost a lot of weight. Um, so it's, it's just really bizarre that, you know, somebody from high school was probably interviewed when she died and said, oh, I remember Camilla's, you know, kind of chubby and <laughs> that's probably all they had to go on. So you draw on a lot of different, um, sort of unorthodox sources in this final section, I think, to try to get a sense of what her personality, what her mind would have been like. So I'd love to talk through a few of those. Um, one is these different potential psychological explanations for her behavior, and you draw on someone else's PhD dissertation, which I thought was interesting. Um, Tell us more about that source and what from it did you find useful for understanding her? Right. So that source, it is a PhD dissertation done in 1978 by a man named Harvey Honig. And that dissertation was included in those archives when I first came across any Camilla material. That dissertation was there. So I was able to read it right away at the beginning of my research. 
And it's so valuable because Harvey was a PhD student in psychology. And so his whole premise is he wants to try to get to know Camilla on a psychological level. Well, clearly she's dead, right? So his sources are her parents who sit down to do interviews with him. He talks to three friends of Camilla from different stages in her life and does interviews with them. And then he also employs um, a, a writer to analyze her poems. And he employs a couple of art therapists to take a look at this artwork that Camilla has done to see like what kind of psychological um, background informs her, her writing and her art. So uh, he did just a really thorough job in doing this dissertation. What I love most about the dissertation are those interviews, because by the time I come across this story, her parents are dead. Um, and so to like hear their voice, I mean, the transcripts are right in the dissertation. So to hear them being interviewed and answering questions that I too would have asked had they been alive, uh, it's just like they were still alive. You know, they just came alive through the page. So uh, without having that, um, this would have been a very difficult book to write. And I thought that using her poetry and her art as a source was also a really interesting one. What did you learn about her, do you think, by diving into that that visual work, either from the psychologists who are profiling it or even just your own time spent looking at it and reading it? Yeah, so I'm no expert, you know, in art, you know, art or, or poetry for that matter. But even somebody like me, when I do take a look at her art, uh, for example, she does have two very distinct styles. And so there's there's one style that is very calm and placid and it's kind of even whimsical, like these little li these line drawings that she does. And then she has some more illustration type of work where there's often very menacing figures or there might be a, a bigger monster type of figure chasing a smaller figure. And it, it does become clear that Wow, you know, it, it seems like this is a person wrestling with kind of two very two very different sides of her, and you know, maybe that more public side and maybe that more private side. Um, you know, and one thing that I think about too is when she's in California, she is living as a lesbian. She's out, you know, her her friends know, like people around her know, but she never tells her parents. And so I think too what what a, a secret and what a, a burden that must have been for her to feel like she could never reveal her full self to her parents. And when I see this art, I just sometimes wonder if that was her just struggling with having to keep this side of this side of herself um, a secret from the people that she loved the most. And her her poems too, um, you know, they, they're, they're often taught, they often talk about kind of this longing and this love for somebody and sometimes unrequited love. But then there's some that are a little darker too and, and kind of have this apocalyptic tone. And, you know, that makes me think too what, what's going on, kind of these two different sides. And it's hard to separate too the, the writer from the persona. You know, it's, it's kind of easy to just want to assume that that is Camilla's voice in these poems, and, and maybe it's not for all we know. But uh, but I think even for somebody not well versed in looking at writing or, or art, you can see kind of these two really distinct viewpoints coming out of her art and writing. 
And in that in this final section, you also have another really interesting source, which is another former member of the SLA who you actually go to visit in prison. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about Sarah Jane Olson, another Minnesota woman who is wrapped up in this. Um, could you talk about what it was like to to visit her and what insights you got from speaking with her? Yeah, so that was my first time ever visiting anyone in prison. So I just really was taking it all in and really quite wide-eyed. Um, ironically, for the last year, I've been teaching university classes inside of prisons. So now on a weekly basis, I'm going to these uh, facilities and, and teaching people and really seeing it from the inside. Um, but Sarah Jane uh, had told me uh, in a letter, she said, yes, I'll talk to you, I'll visit with you, but I'm not going to talk about this time in the SLA uh, that I had. And she didn't know Camilla. So Camilla died in the shootout Sarah Jane and some others then stepped up to help the three, you know, Patty Hearst and the Harrises, the three that had survived or weren't part of that shootout. So they didn't cross paths. So I knew that she didn't know Camilla, but I really did just want to talk to her just in general to get a sense of somebody growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, how do they land in Berkeley, you know, how does their mind shift to say, yeah, I, I want to support a revolution. I want to support a violent revolution. So I really saw Sarah Jane as a parallel story. So even if she couldn't tell me a lot about Camilla or a lot about the SLA, just talking to somebody who perhaps had that same kind of mindset as Camilla was really helpful. And you mentioned earlier that you first came across Camilla in 1999. So that was now a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> why, why now? Why do you think that this was the right time to write this book? Yeah, I really, I really do feel, uh, I, I believe in divine intervention. I felt that with my memoir, too. The memoir was a 13-year process by the time I started writing until the time it was finished. And so at times it felt very frustrating and very long. And I just think, why is this taking so long? But when the memoir came out, I felt like that was that, that was the right time. Like everything took that time for a reason. Um, and, and with this book, I mean, a lot of different factors go into why does it take so long? You know, I'm, I'm working, I have a family, I was writing the memoir for a big chunk of that. So I can I can't write two books at a time. So <laughs> it just had to be shelved for a while. But but honestly, right now, um, it feels like the right time for it to be out because I think it might, I think the story has a new resonance now that it didn't have even five or 10 years before. And that being how much the world has changed in the last two years. So I was working on this book. I, I sat down to really do kind of like, okay, this is one more revision, and then I'm going to be ready to send it out to agents and editors. And I sat down to do that in May of 2020. And I was just starting a sabbatical. So I just finished up the semester and, okay, wow, I have all this time now to work on this manuscript. And then at the end of May, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And that being only 80 miles from where I live, I mean, it really felt like ground zero where I was watching just this, just this frustration that had build, been building up for years and years and years just exploded and exploded all across the world. And it was at that point where I thought, okay, people living now are going to understand where somebody like Camilla was coming from because it was that exact same type of thing. Like we are frustrated. We are tired. We have been fighting for years for this thing. Nobody has been listening. So what is our only option? We have to lash out. 
And then even the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots, um, you know, that's a completely different side of the ideological spectrum, but it's still kind of that same basis. Like, we are frustrated. We are so angry that we are going to resort to violence to try to get people to listen to us. Uh, so I do feel that that it, this story does have a new resonance uh, for today that people will understand. Well, perfect timing because it's coming out next month, um, probably, what, three three or four weeks from now, right? Yeah, exactly. And who do you hope is going to read this? What was the audience you had in mind? And who do you think will, will benefit from this book? Yeah, well, I certainly hope uh, that it reaches people who remember that time. It's really fun when I talk to people about this, um, people who do remember the 1974 and the Patty Hearst kidnapping. I mean, if people were alive during that time, they remember it, you know, and they have stories about it and they remember where they were and, and a lot of them maybe followed it, you know, if, for, through the whole course of it. So I hope certainly p- people that actually remember that time. But of course, I would like younger people to be able to read it too. I think anybody who is interested in, say, true crime, anyone who is interested in really kind of those psychological stories of why do people do what they do, I hope that it would get that kind of audience. And really, Camilla represents those moments in all of our lives where we have chosen one fork of the road over the other. And that's something that I write about in the book too. You know, I think of myself as compassionate and empathetic and I want the world to be a better place. And I care about people who are struggling, but you know, what am I willing to do? I mean, could I, if I had a background like Camilla, like, could I have made those choices too? Because of course, when we make choices, we don't, know how bad they might be. So I hope that people would read this book too, just to um, get a better understanding of why somebody like Camilla made the decision she did. But, you know, maybe people can even use this story to reflect on their own lives as well. Absolutely. I think you're what we talked about earlier in this, about the, these sort of shallow narratives for especially women, um, but really all people who end up in these kinds of situations it makes them seem so monstrous and far away. But as you show here, it's these are really things that could happen to many of us. And it's it's helpful, I think, to realize how, you know, there but for the grace of God. Yeah, exactly. And I but I think that's one reason sometimes we see those narratives that come out like those really easy, shallow narratives, because it's like we don't we don't want somebody to seem too close to us. You know, we don't want to be able to identify with them. We want to just put them you know, over there in that little box. And, you know, that's all, that's where the crazy people are. Um, so there can be something frightening about thinking, wow, maybe I have more in common with this person than, than I thought. But I think that is important, though, just to understand that we all do have a shared humanity. Absolutely. And this last question might be a little premature since your book isn't actually out yet, but uh, what are you working on next? And do you see a future with this topic or are you moving into a different direction? Well, I do have several essays um, that I can go back to now. Uh, uh, One of my biggest faults is starting an essay, working on it, getting feedback on it, and then never returning to it. So I have all of these unfinished essays that I think could be finished and, you know, maybe just published separately. I don't know if it's really a collection, but we'll see. Um, I'm in the 
super, super beginning exploratory stages of another story. At this point, it's not clear if it would be perhaps just like a magazine article or if it could be a book length project. Um, it would be a biography um, and the person that it would be about is still living. So I would need the buy, I would need buy-in from this person and I'm not sure that I will get that. So um, not really sure where that's going yet, but that's where I've been putting some of my energies lately. But no matter what I write next, it will be nonfiction. I only write nonfiction. I love history. I love journalism. Um, I've never tried to write fiction or poetry because I'm not interested. So I love true stories. So that will be my next project. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about this project. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Um, And once again, I'm Rebecca Turkington. You've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. And we've been discussing Rachel Hannell's new book, Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. It will be out imminently from Minnesota University Press. So keep an eye out at your local bookstore.